This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Sitting here on these mics, and the mics are hot. Uh huh. We're represent like we together are a brand. <laughs> yes, with our true. brands combined, <laughs> and the things that one of us do reflects on the other one. So, like when I'm super smart and funny every week, that reflects on you positively. And so, I the only the only thing I ask is that you do the same for me, please. Extend me the same courtesy. Well. That's just not be possible. a mirror for my light bulb instead of being a shroud <laughs> um, and make my light shine brighter. Um, welcome to Overdue. This is a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. Andrew, how do you think that the podcast will change after your move? When I moved down to Philadelphia, yeah. So, so congratulations are in order that Andrew uh, and his wife have successfully purchased a house. Yep, own five percent of a house. <laughs> I'm very excited about uh, it. And what's your favorite five percent of the house? that's going to be yours. I haven't. I haven't decided yet. You know, <laughs> okay. it might be the utility room. <laughs> Because, listen, if the bank comes to try and foreclose on that and I hole up in the utility room, like, I control everything that anybody would want to buy in the house, right? That's a good so, point. Like, I That's... control the HVAC system. I control the water heater. I control everything. I just imagine there's, like, a bank man in a bank suit, like, knocking down the door and you're just, like, and I'm, like up sitting... against the circuit breaker. Like, right, you with, can't. Like, a, with, like, a baseball bat. <laughs> like, you can't take it from me. So congratulations on order. Do you think it will change the show at all? We've been doing the show for too long now. Three-ish years, three point something years. It's been me in the city of brotherly love talking Mm -hmm. to you from somewheresville, New Jersey. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's been part of our vibe. I I saw a sign of McDonald's advertisement on the way out of the city that said that Philly was the city of breakfast love. (laughs) Yeah, that's us just having sex with omelets all day. That's Loving us. Breakfast. Yeah, see, that's that's my worry is that you and I for the last what like eight years have cultivated a long distance friendship. Yeah, that's predicated on podcasting and like seeing each other once every couple of months. Correct. And so if we can just pop over, like if especially if if I get a key to your place so I can like let you in during emergencies, which is like the pretext for why I would have a key to your place. Like if I can just Kramer over at any point, what is that going to do to our vibe? I don't know what would happen to our podcast if you became Cosmo Cunningham. I don't know what would happen. Yeah, you're going to find out real soon. Oh, my gosh. Don't worry about it. Well, uh, levels, levels, cherry. Yeah. The other thing that's happening right now is that we are recording this podcast on the eve of America's birth, um, which for those of you who do not live in America, um, it's a holiday mostly celebrated by fireworks. And there's a bunch of them happening around my house right now. Yeah. If if you hear them in the background and this podcast is still airing, I'm okay. (laughs) I do. This is is something we were talking about before we started the recording, but. If those of you in other countries could let me know, do you all celebrate your country's birthday by setting off controlled explosions? Please get at me about this. Thank okay. you. Thank you. Thank you. So each week, a couple of minutes in, we talk about books. <laughs> uh, one of us reads a book. The other one hears about it and sometimes asks charming questions. Mm-hmm. Andrew, that's your role this week. Oh, yeah. I'm on it. Don't worry about it. Uh, so here's my first charming question. Craig, what book did you read this week and by whom was oh. it 
written. That's like two and a half questions. I read uh, Island of the Blue Dolphins by Scott O'Dell. Okay. Uh, which is a book. Did you know? Oh. Did you know? I'm breaking in with a fact. Breaking news. Did you know that Scott O'Dell was born Odell Gabriel Scott? I did. But his name was incorrectly printed on a book as Scott O'Dell. And he was like, you know what? I like that better. <laughs> I did know that. I think that's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. Um, I like the idea that someone looked at his first name and went, that's not a first name. Yeah, Odell? You gotta be kidding me. What? Like, what's what's short for Odell? Odie? Odie. Odie. Oh, is that what Odie's name from Garfield is? That's his full name? No, it's probably like Otis or something. Otis? Why would your... Otis... Listen, why would the short version of your name just be an alternate spelling with exactly the same number of syllables and letters? <laughs> I don't know. Okay. I can't help you there. Uh, so I do know that he was born in, uh, this is uh, Odell or Scott Odell, not Odie from Garfield, um, mm-hmm. was born in 1898 in L.A. And a lot of what I've learned from his website is that he is—he was happy to remind you while he was still alive that that was a period of time where they had more horses than automobiles, and L.A. still kind of felt like a frontier town. <sighs> He's one of those guys, huh? Yeah. Back in the good old days. Back in the good old days. Before he had, like, plumbing and vegetables and stuff. Sure. What? <laughs> uh, and he, he, is, he wrote, uh, he passed away in 1989, I believe. He wrote almost 30 novels, Mm -hmm. or uh, maybe over 30 if you count novels not for children, something like that. Um, He won the Newbery for Island of the Blue Dolphins in 1961, after it was published in 1960. He was a runner-up for three other novels. And did you know, Andrew, that he served, or at least was part of the armed forces for both world wars? I did not know that. And I don't know that he ever saw active combat, which is kind of kind of amazing. Lucky for him, I guess. Yeah, it was like he enlisted uh, when he was twenty in World War One, and was in training to be an officer when the war ended. And then he was forty during World War Two, and like enlisted in the Air Force and was stationed on a base mm-hmm. stateside. Sure. So served his country. Uh, did not have to fight overseas. Very relevant on this July 4th. Yeah. Um, he grew up in the California area, and he traveled around a lot and then spent a lot of time like out in nature, like plucking around as a kid. Mm-hmm. And I think you see that in a lot of his writing and certainly in this book, as we'll get to it. Um, and a very big interest in cultures from that region. So this book is about a woman um, who we believe was from the Nicolaino tribe of uh, Native Americans in southwestern United States. And a lot of his other books deal with um, similar cultures or at least, you know, cultures of that region. Sure. Do you, do you want to know something about how he got into writing children's literature? Which I thought oh, was interesting. Yeah. Um, so I found this interview... From uh, 1984 in the New York Times, and stuff stuff that is this old that is on the website of the New York Times is like formatted really weirdly. So like the headlines are all in caps. Maybe the line breaks aren't necessarily where they're supposed to be. I don't know what like OCR robot they had scan all these articles <laughs> in. But once you get past all of that stuff, you find out some interesting facts about uh, Odell Gabriel Scott. Uh, so. In the this is in the late fifties, and Odell like he had not been he had not yet begun to write children's books, and he wasn't he said he didn't have writer's block so much as he just like wasn't interested in writing. Um, he was he was doing gardening and working in wildlife preservation instead, and uh, hunters apparently were killing wildlife in the area where he lived, and he says to the to the NYT. Uh, They were killing all the wildlife. He said, I got awfully damn mad. I got so mad I wanted to do something about it. And uh, quietly and coolly, quote unquote, he wrote Island of the Blue Dolphins. (laughs) Okay. And and yeah, that was like, I think there are themes in this book and a lot of the books that he's written about um, like getting back to nature 
and to living like a simpler existence. And that's the that's kind of the trigger for for a lot of the stuff that he wrote. And he says uh, the book that the book was not written with any audience in mind. He says it was just something I wanted to say to myself. Yeah, and that's interesting. There are. I want to come back to, to the impetus from writing the book, but sure, I want to plant this in in the back of your mind as we talk about the story. Is it? I read a couple blurbs of reviews for this book, and they said were the they same. Contemporary or were they contemporary? Okay, cool. And they said the same thing. There's like there is a a single singular quality to the book in that. It is making a statement mm-hmm. about our relationship to nature, but it because it's based on a historical character from another time and it's told from her limited point of view, it doesn't feel... It could very easily have been a Michael Crichton book, you know? And it's not. <laughs> like, it is not preaching about systems. It is not engaging about that. It, it is simpler and i don't mean that as a negative no i feel like like when you say simpler i feel like you probably mean like it's about simple pleasures of just like existing in nature right like it won't be pleasures necessarily but it is it is simpler experiences just you know um it is not it is less about eschewing a bunch of complicated stuff and more about yeah well pleasures to a certain extent about yeah you know, um, go ahead. Sorry. Oh no, no, no! It, you you were making a face like you were going to say something. So no, I no, I'm just, I've got more quotes from that same interview. Hit me. He, he said, um, in the story, he tries to weave together the themes of reverence for all life and the Christian ideal of forgiveness. So I'm actually kind of interested to hear if that, like, particularly like the Christian themes, hit home with you or if they're a little more universal in that way or, or they're what? more universal and that's sure. one of the themes i highlighted so forgiveness right. we'll hit on that uh Can he did imagine say <laughs> dolphins <laughs> uh he said that the island island of the blue dolphins began in anger uh anger at the hunters who invade the mountains where I live and who slaughter everything that creeps or walks or flies. So dolphins. So creeping, dolphins. walking, flying dolphins. Uh he also I found that quote from his website, uh Scottodell.com. Mm-hmm. And I want to just be while we're talking about the old New York Times website, I love that the homepage for this website has like a little splash page. Where there is... Does it require Flash to be installed? I don't think so. There's a photo of him as a younger man and just a link that says, unlock the adventure. And then you click on it and it goes to the actual homepage where there's a photo of him as a much older man. Oh, look at that little animated (laughs) dolphin in the upper left-hand corner. It's pretty great. great. It's a great website. Um, he did also, when he's talking about writing books for kids, he shared a couple anecdotes about kids like writing in letters. He says, writing stories you hope children will read is more rewarding than writing for adults. Adults are not good correspondents. But if children <laughs> like your books, they respond with thousands of letters. And then he went on to tell a story about a little girl who wrote him like a 12-question letter about Island of the Blue Dolphins. And when he did not respond within a week, she wrote him another letter that said, if you don't respond soon, I'll just write another author. I like their work better. Whoa. It's just pretty awesome. I mean, I can I can vouch for adults not being great correspondents. No, no, they are not. I will like, a friend from college will send me an email and I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe, I'm, I'm hearing from them after so long. I'm totally going to get back to them. And I'll have that tab open Mm-hmm. For like a month before mm-hmm. I finally get back to it. Yeah, I got an it's email stupid. from I'm a bad. friend. Yeah, I'm bad too. I got an email from a friend here in Philly that was like a one, it was a one sentence email clarifying another email I had sent to him. Mm-hmm. I saw him today and we did not talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> like, what are we doing? I just, Everyone. Maybe that's what Facebook is for. Like, I want people to... Like, there needs to be a way for me to acknowledge that I've received an email and that I appreciated it. Oh, like liking it? Yeah. And it's like, <laughs> like, I don't have. That made me laugh 
the idea of liking emails. Liking email, like sometimes people send you a short email, and it's like, okay, where's the fave button on this email? Like, how can I just, how can I acknowledge this email without replying back and just being like, nice, good email. Yeah, and it's not like you're wasting email ink to send a one-word response, but some people don't like one-word response emails. Sometimes one word isn't, I don't know, like it's sometimes no words, like an acknowledgement that has no words is less uncomfortable than an acknowledgement that has words. Because if I send you a one word reply, it's like, you know, my fingers are on that keyboard. You know, I could have written you more than that. Okay. But that's all that I did. So what are you trying to communicate by just sending blank emails to me? (laughs) Oh, that's what that's what it should be. You should just send blank emails. It's not just for moms who accidentally hit send before the email's ready anymore. Uh, welcome to Email Corner. Uh, we'll we'll take your emails later. Uh, Andrew, did you know that this book was based on a real person? Did I tell you that? Uh, no, you didn't. A real uh, dolphin? So island? No, not on a real dolphin. Well, I can't I can't say that the islands in this the dolphins in this book are not based off real dolphins, but. Um, Scott O'Dell based this story off of the life of the lone woman of San Nicolas Island who lived in the 19th century on San Nicolas Island, just off off the coast of California. That checks out. The titular uh, island of the Blue Dolphins. And she, as I said a couple minutes ago, was a member of what we believe to be the Nicolaino tribe uh, that largely, I don't think... The word extinct is correct, but like was eradicated or lost to time. Eradicated or implies effort on the part of some third party. Well, we'll get to that. There okay. were otter hunters that, that helped eradicate their tribe. All right. She was the last surviving member. She lived 18 years alone on this island from the late 1830s to the mid 1850s, was found by a captain who had heard that she might be there. And then brought to the States where they attempted to talk with her. She didn't speak anyone's language. And they tried to learn a little bit about her story. And apparently she didn't live more than a year or two in California because she like ate a bunch of fruits and other sugary foods that she hadn't had while she was like basically subsisting on fish and otters or whatever on her island and Mm -hmm. like the drastic change in diet precipitated her death jeez which is kind of nuts yeah um she received the name juana maria from a uh, priest who took care of her after she had been brought to the mainland and baptized her so that she could be buried um and she is most of what we know of these people and this island we think was settled or had people living on it, you know, as early as 2000 BCE. Um, it is now a U.S. Navy base, I think. Okay. <laughs> of course. Very respectful to their memory. <laughs> uh, and in the early uh, 21st century, there were folks uh, digging around on that island and they think they found her cave. Um, but then a local, uh, another uh, Western American tribe asked them to halt the hmm. digging, um, which is that's an interesting. I don't know. I I can't speak to how people feel about that, but that's an interesting like part of historical preservation is like uh, white people who are interested in this particular culture like going out and trying to excavate a bunch of its artifacts and then well, especially if she was sort of the last of a of a particular branch yeah. of of whatever this tribe is i mean it, it's not digging up their stuff is literally the least that we could do but sure yeah like it's i don't know it's it what what's worse like us disturbing that stuff or like us knowing more about it and trying to pass it on. I don't know. It's it's a complicated question. Yeah. Th- there were a bunch of artifacts that we did get uh, from that Island in the late 19th century that then were lost during the San Francisco earthquake. And then 
there apparently a skirt that she made was sent to Rome for some reason. Um, Makes but sense. Has since been lost. So <laughs> not quite, maybe that was just a tall tale. Not quite sure. Okay. Uh, so Odell had come across this story while researching another book, and it struck a chord in him at the same time that he wanted to write, as we were saying, about man's course relationship to nature. Um, and this seemed to be the story that he should tell. Okay. So, it's it falls in line with other survival books that we may or may not have read for the show. Like, we ta- we read My Side of the Mountain. We've made allusions to Hatchet a couple right, of times. Yeah, yeah. If you've ever seen Castaway, there's an element of Castaway here. Well said. <laughs> Sad his voice. Wilson. <laughs> uh, so it follows a young woman named Karana, who is a uh, a member of this tribe living on Island of the Blue Dolphins. Um, mm-hmm. and that's what that's what she refers to it as. They have a village named Galas At, and her dad is the chief of the tribe. It's a tribe, I think it's probably 80 or 90 people. Like, it's not that big. Um, but they do reference that there are like 45 men in the tribe. Do you get a sense of the, of like, the, has the tribe been bigger in the past and it's dwindled? Or like, I'm just kind of wondering, like, it, does does Odell convey to you, the reader, the the idea that this is sort of passing or like this tribe's ideals are being encroached upon by like a, a quote unquote modern world or, or what? Cause I sure. feel like that's, that's a, that's something that he had in mind as he wrote about this kind of stuff. Yeah. So within a couple pages, we are introduced to Karana, her, her sister Ulape, her younger brother Ramo, and the fact that her dad's in charge. And then all of a sudden, uh, Ramo sees a ship on the horizon and it has red sails and they immediately are concerned that it is from the Alouette tribe. Um, and the Alouette people in real life, and I guess in this book also, because I'm reading it not knowing this information and then like learning it later so it feels fictional, but it's actually real. Um, <laughs> cool, they fair. they uh, hail from the Aleutian Islands. I don't know how to pronounce that. Um between Alaska and Russia, which makes sense because this Russian guy shows up with people from this tribe that he is either enslaved or employed, probably enslaved. I think Aleutian. Aleutian? Yeah. Alut, then maybe it's the Alut people. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have come to the island before several years ago, maybe generations ago. And so there's reason for Karana's tribe to mis- to distrust these people her father at one point what after they strike a deal to let them hunt otters he says we will profit from them we will not profit by befriending them even though that they are not the same people who hurt us before so already there's a sense of preserving the tribe and keeping the tribe safe well, lo and behold andrew how do you think this goes down not good not good <laughs> Uh, ding 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 people don't keep promises (laughs) so there's a period of time where the tribe is like watching the Aleutians and their russian bosses like hunt all these otters and kill all these otters there's like a moving passage i don't know if you feel the same way about otters that i do but otters rule (laughs) like i guess i do see a lot of videos about them on facebook being cute yes they and are my, in the in yes. the Redwall books. They are good guys. So that's that's pretty much how I form my opinions on any animal in the animal kingdom. Uh, as the book states, the sea otter, when it is swimming, looks like a seal, but it's really very different. It has a shorter nose than a seal, small webbed feet instead of flippers, and fur that is thicker and much more beautiful. It is also different in other ways. It likes to lie on its back in the kelp beds floating up and down in the motion of the waves sunning itself or sleeping they are the most playful animals in the sea it was these creatures that the Aleuts hunted for their pelts so they're like odell has a really nice way of just kind of dropping a bunch of pretty 
they're not complex sentences, but like build to that nice little like button at the end. Yeah, and and this um this New York Times interview that I had read about him commented that like he he had been writing for a while and it says he had just developed over the years a spare cadence prose style mm. uh yet he had never quite found his literary niche so he had he was an accomplished writer before he started writing children's books and that's apparently serving him pretty well here right yeah and i wonder if as a reader now in the 21st century it does meet my perhaps uh short-sighted expectation of a character whose first language isn't english right there's explain to me what that means the it is not complex language in the way that modernist writers of the 20th century were writing okay it's convey it's conveying a a simpler way of life a simpler time and that's reflected Uh, in the language yeah and then also i i it for me it evokes some uh my limited experience with like native american poetry that is like very spare but very evocative um the okay. way that the way that this book handles a lot of karana's emotions are is very indirect um so we'll get to that when we talk about forgiveness but the russian and these uh other folks totally you know double back on their deal they uh, try of course to- they try to give one chest of like beads and stuff when they promised a whole bunch of other crap. And uh, her dad, Karana's dad, is like, hey, listen, we had a deal. This isn't, you should probably like not bail on us right now. And she's like, I don't really know how this started, but all of a sudden I looked up and my dad's face was bloody and everyone started fighting. Uh-oh. Um, and of course, the boat has like a cannon on it, which they reference a couple times, and a couple of people go down. At the end of the fight, her dad is dead. the The Russian and the the Aleutians leave. They've taken all the otter skins, etc., and the tribe has gone from forty two men to fifteen, seven of whom are elders. So they're not in great shape. No, 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 no. Uh, and I just, yeah, th- it does move on to a section where, like, okay, now the women need to pitch in with the hunting. And there's even a line where, like, Karana mentions that the women are better at it <laughs> because they're working harder than the men. Because of course they are. <laughs> Which is because like, because of course they are. It's a kind of a cool dig. And it's also born out of circumstance. It's like, like it's a cool dig, but I bet it's not intended as a cool dig. No, it is. I don't know. There, well, so we'll get to this. Uh, like a women bit only later. get seventy percent of the meat that men get <laughs> when they bring home a carcass. Did you know yeah. that? Did you? Yeah. Were you aware of that figure? The fern ceiling is real on this mm-hmm. island. <laughs> um. So a new chief steps up. His name is Kim Key. And he's like, hey, listen, I'm going to sail east in my canoe. And I'm going to try and get some help from the country across the sea. The country across the sea being what, America? Uh, it's not quite clear. They, there's just another, some like, vaguely defined promised land or something. Uh, a, little, you know, a little bit of the latter. There's an island that they are aware of, but they're not eager to leave their home. To me, it, it's just... It takes some interesting mental energy to conjure what life must be like if your entire experience is living on an island with 90 people. Like, that is just so... A lot of of the experience of this character is foreign in a really cool way where it's like, I can't... I don't know what I would do with myself. It's gotta be like... It's kind of like living in a dorm, right? And then you send somebody over to the other dorm to try and get help. Okay. Because the administration of the college has come and killed all your men. I was going to say, like, the phone lines are down and we need help ordering Papa John's. But, like, that's, that's cool. No, that's that good, too. No. No, that's great. <laughs> the the, the women are much better at ordering Papa John's than oh the men were, too. God. So Kim Key goes 
And he's like, hey, guys, I'll be back. They wait a month to start worrying. Like, that's... Remind yourself that we're in the 19th century. So, like, a moon passes before we start worrying. Yeah, like, I send an email, and if I don't get a reply back in a couple days, I'm like, hey, did you get my email? You get antsy. Hey, hey, uh, I just circling back on that email that I sent. Could you uh, (laughs) let me know? Just let me know, please. It's one of my favorite things about working with you, because we'll do, like, team emails sometimes, and... It, it takes half the time for me to wonder what's going to happen with an email for you to be like, hey, Craig, do you want to send, do you want to, you want to look into that for me? Come on now. I'm not, I don't try to like fob off our correspondence <laughs> on you, but. No, no, I'm happy to take the lead on that, but it's, I, I just noticed you have a shorter fuse for unresponded emails. Because I, I know do. how often people check their email, man. <laughs> You just we just need more empty emails coming back to us. We'd feel way better. <laughs> so Kim Key never comes back, but a boat full of white people arrives. God, typical. I know. Ugh. And everyone in the tribe's really worried. They're like, "Oh my God, are these more Aleutians? Are we in trouble? Are we going to get hurt?" And they pack up a lot of their belongings into these canoes so that they can escape if necessary. And one of the tribesmen runs up. He's like, no, no, no. Kim Ki sent these guys. They're here to take us because we're having a hard time. They're going to take us to this other island. It's going to be great. Pack up what you need to and let's go. And all like this doesn't seem like a good situation. Sure. Right? Because I, I mean, who's where did they get the information that Kim Ki sent these guys? Like, exactly. how do they know that? From the guys. They like, just assume. <laughs> It doesn't seem like a good deal. Uh, so Karana is worried about getting her brother Ramo on the boat. And Ramo wants to bring his fishing spear. And she's like, no, we just got to go. You, you got to leave it behind. And, of course, as she's getting on the boat, she's wondering where Ramo is. And the one uh, tribesman is like, no, 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 he's here. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. And, of course, she gets on the boat. It's There's a huge storm and things are crazy. She can see from the boat that her brother is still on the beach, waving his spear in the air, kind of being like, hey, guys. Hey, did you forget me? <laughs> like a Home Alone scenario. <laughs> like uh, He wished his whole family away. And she dives into the ocean and swims back to him. And the boat sails off. Um, this is a romanticized version of the actual story of Juana Maria. Um, some say that she never made it on the boat. Some say that she fell off. Um, but this version of the tale obviously reached Scott O'Dell. So okay. she swims back. So she's back and the, she and her brother are back together again. And that's it. Um, and they have a cool relationship. Like he's a little, he's a younger guy and, I think he's like maybe 10 or 11 at this point, if not younger. And Jeez, he's like, really? oh. And he has a spear to wave? Yeah, he's a fishing spear. It's I probably would, a really sharp a, stick. I wouldn't give a 10-year-old a spear. <laughs> I wouldn't give a 10-year-old an iPod. Like, that <laughs> seems like too much responsibility. I would give a 10-year-old a spear and an iPod full of fish hunting music on it. A bunch of <laughs> Ted Nugent songs. It's that free U2 album about yeah. <laughs> hunting fish. Uh, and there's a there's a funny little passage after he declares himself uh, the new chief of the tribe. Okay, fine. Um, where he's like, okay, so I'm in charge now. I am the chief. And she goes, well, are you sure that you want to be the chief like are you you haven't become a man yet and she goes first you must become a man as is the custom i will have to whip you with a switch of nettles and then tie you to a red anthill and he's like oh it seems like an animal house style prank but that's and, fine and she goes uh since there are no men to give the rights perhaps you will not have to undergo the nettles and the ants chief ramo <laughs> i like that she's just kind of putting her brother on blast for like eh, maybe i could be the chief well eh, i don't know if you have you uh have you sat have on you, the anthill yet have you, sat, have you got eh, ants in your butt yet no it's cool you probably don't need to sit on the anthill the who's, ant gonna know? Trial? who's gonna know no. if you don't hit on the sit on the anthill <laughs> it's fine uh so the thing that they have to deal with is they're living 
They're trying to decide where they're going to stay on the island. The village buildings are still there. It's kind of creepy because no one's still on the island. And are they the only two left on the island? Everyone only, else left in the boats? Yep. Only two left on the island. Okay. And the other like main creature that they're dealing with is this pack of wild dogs. So there were dogs that belonged to the tribe. There were wild dogs on the island. And there were dogs that belonged to the Aleutians. And the Aleutians left in a huff, left a bunch of dogs behind. The tribe left in a huff, left a bunch of dogs behind. So now there's just all wild dogs. <laughs> it's kind of a mess. Okay. And since this book is not called Island of the Blue Dogs, I assume that these are not going to be friendly dogs that they make friends with. No. No, not at all. Um, this is only a little ways in, and it kind of defines the rest of the book. Uh, Ramo says that he's going to go off and get one of the canoes that they left behind because it had a bunch of supplies in it. She's like, okay, I'll tend to stuff here. I, you're still my baby brother. I don't know who gave you that spear and that iPod, but it'll be fine. And he doesn't come back. And it takes a couple days for her to go out there and find that there's a pack of dogs. And they are uh, celebrating their recent kill. They're not hungry dogs. No. Because they uh, ate a boy. Well, I don't know they finished eating him, but they definitely kill her younger brother um if he had sat on the anthill this would not have happened if he had become a man he Ugh. would have had to be no this is what comes with taking shortcuts <laughs> it, she does talk about the fact that like his spear was broken and might have been in one of the dogs but it was not like a dog hunting spear it was a fish hunting spear so like he was never going to be able to fend off all these dogs. So we had not invented the multi-purpose spear yet at this point. No. Okay. No. <laughs> uh, and this is where we enter the proper like castaway part of this narrative, where so Karana, she's on this she's on this island by herself, all by herself with a bunch of dogs. She is thinking now. This her brother dies only a couple days after the boat was around, so she's still wondering: Are these people going to come back for me? Am I going to get off this island? Mm -hmm. I hate this island. These dogs <laughs> killed my these dogs killed my brother. Oh, I hate this island. The illusions killed my dad. This island sucks. All I want to do is kill these dogs and get off this island. Um, she at one point tries like she finds the cave where all the dogs live, and she sets a fire in front of it. And her plan is to like slowly move the fire into the cave by like continually lighting more stuff on right. fire. Uh, the problem with this island is that there's not a lot of trees. It's a very windswept island. She can't even realize her dog revenge. No, she can't realize her dog revenge. Uh, so she, she kind of goes a little rogue. She really gets creeped out by the village that's left behind. So she sets the village on fire and burns it down. She's got a fire uh, thing, huh? She's got a bit of a fire thing. Um, and her plan is to find some tools so that she can kill those goddamn dogs. Uh, that makes sense. That's what I would do. Yes. Um, Gotta get them dogs. She digs up a chest that was left behind by the Aleutians, and there, are, there were not weapons in it as promised. And so her plan is like, all right, well, I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to fight these dogs. I got to get off this island. And this is like the first of a series of events that happened throughout the book where she embarks on a thing. She's kind of in danger, but because it's her book, you can tell that she's not going to die or anything. Um, but she doesn't succeed. Mm -hmm. So like she goes out to sea in this canoe. It starts to leak because it was like left in the sun and the wood all like expanded and got crazy. And then she has to come back. And that's when she realizes that she's like, no, I guess I'm, I don't think I'm going to leave this island. I think this is just where I'm going to live. Um, and she has to fashion a house of sorts. Um, it's, I don't know. It. I feel like this happens in these stories where characters are like, I'm, I'm done with civilization. Civilization is what brought me all this heartbreak. I'm done with this. And then after like a couple of days, they're like, maybe I need a house. Maybe I need a house. Yeah. Yeah. Let me burn down this village of houses that exist. Oh, wait. Oh, no. Oh, no. I wish I'd left me a house. Uh, is there anything I could do about that? 
Can we get a house back over uh, here, please? So one of the things that comes up at this point when she's worrying about the uh, tools that she's going to use to fight these dogs Still is... Still fighting the dogs, huh? Like, are the dogs the primary antagonist of the book at this point? For the first half of the book, yeah. I mean, um, we're not even into the... We're not even past the first half yet. We're we're about there. You're gonna have to hurry up, my man. No, don't worry about it. It's, my man. The the book is laid out mostly as encounters with different creatures or goals that she sets for herself on the island. Dogs slash dolphins. Yes. To get to the dogs, she first has to defeat like a walrus. <laughs> okay. Because she needs a walrus tusk. She calls them uh sea elephants. And that makes she, sense. Yeah, sure. And she needs the walrus tusk to make a spear because she doesn't think her arrows are going to be able to kill the dog. And this goes back to one of the things we talked about earlier with whether or not women are, like, okay to live on this island and survive. Um, There's a belief or a superstition in her tribe that uh, forbade the making of weapons by women. Um. Would the four winds blow in from the four directions of the world and smother me as I made the weapons? Or would the earth tremble, as many said, and bury me beneath its falling rocks? Or as others said, would the sea rise over the island in a terrible flood? Would the weapons break in my hands at the moment when my life was in danger, which is what my father had said? And she makes up her mind to ignore all that garbage (laughs) because she would rather, like upset the gods then have dogs bite her to death that makes sense i think that's a, that's the call i would make i think so and it's it's interesting because there's not much else in the book for her like to systemically run up against and yet it's woven into the belief system that she's like remembering the because whole time. that's 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 one of the interesting things about this kind of book is that the main adversary is often nature, but yes. the books also like set out to glorify nature. They do. And it's interesting. So what, what she starts doing is when she gets to the sea elephants, right? She can't bring herself to shoot one with an arrow mm-hmm. and instead has to wait out a fight between two walruses. And then <laughs> once just... one kills the other, you just scavenge the, what you need. <sighs> Correctamundo. Hmm. Hmm. Um, and she, like, I mean, whatever helps you sleep at night, I don't see how that's like <laughs> meaningfully different. Uh, later, she ends up face to face with a pack of dogs. She succeeds in like setting fire to bring them out of their cave. She kills a couple with arrows, I think, um, but ultimately wounds the leader, who then slinks away. And when she finds it, for reasons she can't articulate, she picks it up, carries it back to her house, and nurses it back to health, names it Rontu, and it's her dog now. And okay. it's her dog for the rest of the book. And that is the beginning of what you were saying about this Christian idea of forgiveness. She doesn't really articulate her feelings about the fact that this dog probably killed her brother. Um, But once she sees it wounded... She just needs to heal it, and then it becomes her companion. And so it's and she's her dog. She is in such need of a companion on the island that forgiveness just happens because otherwise she would be you know incredibly alone. Okay. Um, and the rest of the book from there moves from creature to creature for the most part. Uh, there's a pat. There's a passage where her and Rontu are hunting a squid. And there's a passage where Rontu slips away to, like, rejoin his pack for a period of time. And all he wanted to do was beat up the dogs who had tried to take control in his absence. And she watches him do that. And then he, like, rejoins her because Rontu's the best. Okay. Uh, He's like king of the dogs. He is king of the dogs. It's a pretty good fight sequence where he like at one point some he is like licking an injured leg and he's keeping his eyes on the dogs the whole time so they don't come at him. He lowers his eyes. 
knowing that the dogs are going to come at him, and then he breaks a dog's leg. There's a, there's a lot of that kind of stuff in uh, Call of the Wild that I read a few weeks ago. Oh yeah, but like, yeah. So how does how does Odell? And that's always a question for me. Like, how do you structure a good fight sequence in prose? Like, how do you? Is he good at doing that thing where? you the reader like your eyes speed up as you just like as you rush to take in more information and find out what the what the outcome of this fight is you know what i mean yeah it it's i don't know that he is he's not blocking out like cinematic fight sequences in the same way that a lot of writers now like thriller writers might Mm -hmm. now um he does I think surprise you surprise the reader sometimes with oh my god that just happened um let me just make sure I uh, let me find a passage for you sure uh the so this is the two dogs that are coming after Rontu um the spotted dog paused and turned in his tracks and again leaped this time from behind Rontu was still lying in the grass with his paws under him and I thought he did not see that the other was upon him but crouching there, he suddenly raised himself and at the same time fastened his teeth in the dog's throat. Together they rolled off the mound, yet Rontu did not let go. The pack set ra- sat rest- restless in the grass. In a short time, Rontu rose to his feet and left the spotted dog where it lay. So it's not like, oh my god, what's going to happen next? But he does know to like wait a little bit to tell you the the active part. Okay. Um. I don't know. Is that how does that jive with your experience of Call of the Wild? Because I don't really remember how you describe some of those fight sequences, if you can remember. I mean, the the fight sequences in Call of the Wild were very. I mean, they were very blow by blow. Mm, so when okay. Buck would fight with another dog, and and often there is like a big build up to to whatever fight sequence it, it was that you would be reading, but it was it was very detailed, but it was detailed in a way that. And again, like, I, I don't know if you've had this experience before, but you you start reading faster. Yeah, certainly. Because that's just the way that the that the writing is moving. Mm-hmm. And it and, and, and sometimes even like it would, it would make Buck seem like he was down, but that he was like just biding his time. Oh, that okay. makes sense. Like, he'd yeah. Be, you were you were inside his head to the extent that you were worried about what would happen without really being worried that you were going to lose your main protagonist, you know? Yeah. Like yeah. It's, it's creating the, the most anxiety that it can for any character that has top billing. Yeah. So there, <laughs> yeah. And so in this book, there's a sequence towards the end where there's an earthquake on the Island. And I had to reread it a couple of times because I was trying to figure out exactly what was happening. And part of that is Karana not using the word earthquake until after the event has occurred. Like Odell describes the earth falling away under her. It's after he's already described like a tidal wave sequence and he's comparing the two. So there's a sense of disorientation that he conjures really well. Um, where you're like reading and trying to figure out exactly who's in danger, exactly what's being broken, exactly what the fallout of this situation is going to be. Um, and then you can kind of debrief after the chapter break. Sure. So the end of the book kind of winds down after the Aleutians return, after several years, and there's a girl with them that is named Tutok, I believe. Uh, and oh, I think that's the uh, the Vulcan from Voyager. Done. It actually was. I don't know if you knew that. It's no, the same the, person. The Vulcan from Voyager was uh, Tupac. Shakur? No. Not dead. No, it's, a, it's, it's Tupac. I'm telling Biggie a funny Smalls. joke. It's, no, it's <laughs> Tupac. I can't follow you on all of your Star Wars goof. Star Trek. Ooh. Star Wars? You- thanks for listening to overdue uh this is our last episode if you want to tell us how sad you are you can hit us on twitter.com uh and this is where we get a reprise of 
interacting with the other and what it is for uh, Karana to interact with people that she doesn't share language with. It takes her a couple days to even start um, interacting face-to-face with Tutak and, like, trusting this girl who's Mm -hmm. approximately her age. And they exchange, like, gifts. And they exchange words in a really cool way, like pointing at things and saying what their word is for something versus what what the other person's word is for something. Um, And she's nervous the whole time that they're going to come and, like, attack her or come and take her or something. And they don't. Um, Tutak leaves with the illusions and there's there's a kind of longing for oh wow I've I've been so successful living on my own all this time but man it's really cool when people are around Um, and the book ends with her getting picked up just as the real Juana Maria uh, is where you know someone arrives from America and says, hey, we heard you were here. Let's take you. Now, is the implication that this is a good thing? Like, can you inform my... Like, what can you tell me about after the end of this story based on Juana Maria's real story? Well, I can... From the book, I can tell you that when they arrive to come get her, she is wearing... She dresses herself up in, in the best that she has. She's wearing some earrings that she made. She's wearing this cormorant feather skirt that she's really proud of and took a lot of time making um and they immediately put her in like a blue dress that they've made for her and she feels really awkward in it and uh there's like a part of her that's being lost as that happens uh she also finds out that the boat that everyone left on never made it to shore so all of the people that she knew are gone anyway. So she would have died if she had stayed on her boat anyway. Correct. Cool. Um, but then the last image of the book uh, are is her on the boat, and there are dolphins swimming around the boat. And earlier when she's in the canoe, dolphins show up to usher her back to the island, and she talks about dolphins being a, a good omen. Um, so you're left with this peaceful, hopeful image. And from what I've read about Juana Maria, her experience on the mainland was positive. It was good. Um, it wasn't like she was taken and put into some sort of forced labor or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, she did not live very long on the mainland. And and no one shared her language. The what like scant translation or anything we have of her comes from a song that she used to sing that someone claims they translated about like I'm waiting to get off the island or something you know some songs she made up on the island and Mm -hmm. people are a little skeptical of what that translation might be um the book seems hopeful for her at the end she towards the latter part of the book she kind of swears off hurting animals ever ever again uh, even on her own island, uh, she befriends an otter and helps that otter care for its children. And that's after her experience with the dog Rontu, whom she's forgiven, with the birds that she raises, uh, the otter and a couple other animals. And that's the heart of what Odell is talking about going into this book. I don't know how you would continue to subside on that island, and I also think it leaves out fish. But I, you know, that's a thing yeah, that it doesn't like. I envisioned her like riding blue dolphins off into the sunset, which is it does not seem like that's what happens. Emotionally, it seems like that's, or at least we're we're supposed to infer that like wherever she goes, she'll be okay. I mean, it's not called Island of the Emotional Blue Dolphins. Blue Dolphins. <laughs> It's an island full of just crying dolphins. <laughs> <laughs> dolphins who love Dashboard Confessional. They love it. Listen to the silver it's chair all the, the time. <laughs> the emo blue dolphin. <laughs> um, but so that, so, I don't know. The, the theme of forgiveness is totally there. Um, it's something I noted as soon as she started raising Rontu herself and, and bringing it back to back to full health and making it her own dog like mm-hmm. the amount of full health like it, you, she used a curago on it and i don't know what i'm saying <laughs> <laughs> uh, she, at one point she like puts like herbs on its wounds and, and then like, like goes out herbs 
um, dank herbs. Um, okay, cool. And like totally leaves expecting the dog to die anyway, mm-hmm. and then it kind of comes, you know, comes back and and is now her best friend. That's cool. Uh, and again, like the fact that she is willing to become friends with this girl from the tribe that killed her father, like those. Those are two blood oaths that she basically swears in the book. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm going to kill these dogs. And these people killed my dad. And by sheer loneliness, by sheer need to survive, by need for interaction, she overcomes that. And not with a lot of introspection. Um, that's one of the things about this book that I think makes it very accessible to younger readers and also lends it a lot of its uh beauty is the simplicity of language means that we don't spend a lot of time thinking about thinking very hard about what she's doing mm-hmm. she just does it well here's here's something i'm i'm curious about i guess is that a lot of these sort of wilderness adventure books are targeted at kids. So you have like this, you have Call of the Wild, you have Hatchet. These are all books that, I, like, even if the author didn't have children in mind, they definitely are simpler in language in a way that makes them more accessible to younger readers. Mm-hmm. I'm just I'm I'm just kind of wondering why that is. Like, is it an intentional thing to make these books like more accessible to more people and just like like the prose reflects the the sentiment where you're trying to get back to basics or like back to back to the way that humanity was like earlier in history or like what's the why why are there so few well, I'm, I don't know. Like, do you know what yeah, I mean? Like, no, there, I know like, there exactly. Are, there what are a you're lot saying. of these little adventure stories that are geared for younger readers, and I'm sure there are some for older readers as well. But it's mostly not. I don't know. The cast well, Castaway is is maybe ca- for older. But people, what's interesting but. is that Castaway, he's like a FedEx delivery guy, <laughs> and like part of it is how he like after he does make it off the island, how he relates to the modern world now that he's back and mm-hmm. the things that he left behind. Like, yeah, that's, that's, not... that's an adult thing. Like so many yeah. of these, yeah, that's the thing is a lot of these adventure books ends with the person being integrated back into society. And, and but so you not... don't worry about like what, yes. what's it like when this person eats a hamburger or exactly. something. Yeah, <laughs> Exactly. So there were like a I... hundred other hatchet sequels that I never read. And there, there's at least one sequel to this book. I believe it's called uh, Continent Zia. of the Blue Dolphins. It, no, it's called Zia. Um, I think it has to do with instilling a value in a reader, or at least a rather than like, okay, so if you are making a case to adults why you shouldn't hurt animals and like pillage their land, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because the otters in this book are really the tipping point for Karana, where the Russians and the Aleutians basically decimated the otter population to the point where the otters who were still alive when the Aleutians came would leave every year at the same time that the Aleutians came until the otter population got back up to snuff. And that's the animal that helps Karana develop this sense of, I will never hurt animals ever again. Her, her friendship with an otter that she saves. So <laughs> uh, I think for an adult, you have to like come up with a case why we don't need to kill the otters. And there's an economic reason why it's okay to not kill so many otters. And r- appealing to the like lives that someone, the life that someone has built up and how it could be better if you would, this one weird trick to make the world better, right? I think with a kid, you can just, the hope is just expose them to different ways of life and build up a person who is respectful and aware of the needs of like living things around them. Sure, yeah. I I think if you're a 
10-year-old reading this book, you're, you're, you've maybe already thought about what it would be like. Oh, man, wouldn't it be weird to go off and just like live in nature? That would be kind of cool. I've seen movies about that. I've played video games about that. And then here's this book that doesn't really care about who you are as a teen in the 20th or 21st century and is just like a really honest story about this girl and how she grows into a woman who takes care of herself and learns to forgive some pretty nasty stuff. Uh, I feel like that's a harder sell to someone our age. Yeah, yeah, definitely. If, if, I am not going to forget this book, and I, I'm glad I read it as at all. Um, but I, I'm already at a point in my life where I'm like, why did what What does it mean to, for Odell to have written this book in 1960? Like yeah, that's not a thing yeah. we've talked about, right? <laughs> We have too much context and, and like that what is part of the environmentalist movement that led to that he was pretty late in life at that point he was 62 when this book was published like, like what is that about mm-hmm. uh yada 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 give it to a kid and they're like oh that's another kid who's able to live and suffered some crazy hardships I can suffer crazy hardships. Yeah, and still like the, back. It, it will stick with them more anyway, and you have to do less work to make it stick with them, basically. Yeah. Uh, long story short, Rontu's a real cool dog. Son of Rontu seems like a cool dog, too. Uh, Son of Rontu does show up. Son of Rontu. I feel like uh, we, we need to do like a BuzzFeed coolest, <laughs> like coolest literature dogs. Yeah. I think we could. I think we could. We could do a super cut of our dog episodes, mm-hmm. I think. Uh, but yeah, this book's pretty great. Uh, and it's not very long. I think if you have if you have a kid and you're looking for a, a book to read with them, that if their school hasn't already assigned it, like you should go probably read this with them. It's it's probably not a like read it to your kid book. Um, it's like a read it while your kid is reading it and be prepared for questions book. Yeah, and I don't know enough about the movie to say whether or not you should go watch the movie, though I don't think that the actress who played Karana or whatever they named the main character in the movie is of Native American descent at all. So like just a white girl. Yeah. Nice. So in the twenty first century maybe you don't need to do that, but go watch it for yourself first and decide. I, I can't really say. Yeah. Well, uh, if you have seen that movie and would like to weigh in, you can send us an email at overduepod at gmail.com. You can also uh, post images of yourself on cool island trips, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. What One of the things we didn't talk about this episode was like camping trips or like forest trips that we've been on, like wilderness adventures. Yeah, well, that's um, a short conversation because I've been on not very many. <laughs> No wondering. Um, but if you want to share your own travel logs, you can find us on social media at overdue pod, at facebook.com slash overdue pod or twitter.com slash overdue pod. I was, I figured it out there. Um, I want to thank Melissa, Erica, Victoria, Susanna, Amy, Angela, Michael, Rob, Jesse, Autumn, Philip, Joanne, Sarah, Melanie, Zish, Anna, Liz, Sean, Eric, Beth, Sarah, Stacy, Tysophine, Catherine, Sydney, Taylor, Graham, Tegan Goes Vegan, Annie, Molly, Melissa, Alex, Emmett, Maria, Books of Park Place, Schwartzwelder, and uh, our good friend Lucas, who finally got his ideas for our overdue cocktails to us on Twitter. Yeah, they're pretty great, guys. They're pretty great. There's a dead white male cannon or dead white man cannon that I'm really keen to make and guzzle and destroy. Uh, so <laughs> check out herbs. our check out our Twitter for that. We'll find a way to share that in a more permanent form. Andrew, where might we do that? Even though we haven't done it yet, uh, we might do it at overduepodcast.com, which is our internet website. It serves as a repository for all things overdue. Um, up there, we've got links to our iTunes, RSS, Google Play, and Stitcher pages. Those are all ways you can subscribe to the show if you have not already. Um, if you subscribe in iTunes, do rate and review us because we do like getting those when we get them um craig we got a pretty good review this this week oh did we yeah we did it's it's a uh, pretty good 
I'm pretty out. good. I should have uh, I should have pulled it up before. Oh, you didn't just, have it ready. Interesting. Just, just waiting. Uh, How good is it? Well, it's it's a uh, it's intended as a mediocre review, but I choose to view it as a very positive review. It says very good for teens. Adults stay away. <laughs> three out of five stars, which is I think our first three star review ever. Ever, which is impressive. Like we've gotten way more five star reviews than anything, and there have been some two and one star reviews, but this is the first one that's three stars, and I kind of appreciate that. I'm like this this has value, but only for some people. <laughs> <laughs> and only for me some of the time. Yeah. So uh so we're uh overdue, number one podcast for teens. Adults stay away. Adults stay away. Up up on our website, we also have Amazon links to the books that we have read and are going to read. If you click those and buy the books, we get a little cut of that. If you go to our Patreon page, which is also linked up there, uh, you can support us in an ongoing fashion. And uh, we also have links to HeadGum, our podcast network, and Spreaker, our podcast host, and uh, up on our up on that page and also our social media pages in the next couple of weeks, we're going to have more information on our second ever live show. Uh, we are going to be back at the Philadelphia Podcast Festival this year. We're still waiting on a schedule for that, but uh, that's going to happen sometime in mid-August, I believe. Mid to late yeah, August. Mid to late August, sounds like. Uh, so yeah, if you are in the Philadelphia area or anywhere near it, uh, just get get ready to hear more because we're going to be back. I don't think we've decided what we're going to read yet, but we had yeah, a lot of fun doing that last year and we are looking forward to doing it again. Um, Craig, anything else? No, we've... Um, Andrew, do you know what you're reading next? I don't know that I do, actually. That's okay because I think if all goes according to plan, the the next episode after this one, we'll have some special guests on to talk about the Nicholas Sparks novel, A Walk to Remember. Oh, boy. Oh uh, boy. The unfriendly black hotties are going to be on to talk about that gem of a book. Mm-hmm. I cannot wait. Mm-hmm. All right, guys. We will see you next Monday. Until then, please try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.